welcome to Switchbacks, a travel podcast where we reflect on our year visiting all 59 U.S. national parks. Whether you are planning to visit your very first park or you bleed gray and green, we are here to share our insights on exploring, understanding, and loving America's best idea. Thanks for tuning in. Today we're covering details about what you need to know before going deeper into the national parks. So I feel pretty bad for Everglades this week. It, uh, Sorry, I'm eating <laughs> yeah, Justin's see, peanut butter cup over here. I see that. I do feel bad, too. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently not bad Everglades, enough. I mean, so many, so many people, first of all. Uh, we mostly feel bad for, <laughs> and we, our hearts go out to the people more than anything. Of course. Who have been affected by Hurricane Irma. Uh, we're kind of seeing some of its aftermath now. We've been seeing it for a few days. Um, our, we have been thinking about it a lot, and especially just surrounding the national parks, because I know the Virgin Islands were probably hit the worst, possibly. They were hugely pummeled. Um, a lot of employee housing has been destroyed, and the I saw a picture of the visitor center, which is where you know where we stood just two years ago. Uh, taking it all in, and it's it's just huge devastation on the island, on all the Virgin Islands, and so many other places in the Caribbean and in Southeast uh, United States. Really unbelievable. And it, is that the Virgin Islands are from Harvey or Irma? Irma. Okay. But Harvey, too, you know, we can't just forget about that because uh, Houston is obviously still recovering. Man, it's just... Yeah, we crazy to we think. did put a link in our show notes of a place where if you are looking for how to find, um, you know, how to find reputable places to donate your money, you can click the link in our show notes and you can read an article a little bit more about that. Um, I know a lot of people full, feel the push, feel the pull to uh, help after something like this happens. You know, we're extra reminded of that today because it's September 11th. So there's that kind of thinking back to... Um, back to that time when we kind of picked ourselves back up and came together and helped out. So just remember, um, I know we're told this over and over again, but just remember that uh, if you're wanting to help, giving cash is always best and giving to a trusted source. So if you want to help with a big, you know, with a big organization like Red Cross, that's easy. Um, you can also help with a lot of local uh, charities, which sometimes have more direct um, impact on these d- disaster relief efforts. I think I heard somebody say that J.J. Watt's organization was really good. He's a Houston Texan football player, and he just had one that, you know, a ton, uh, the vast majority of the money went to d- directly to help, or maybe all the money went directly to help people. Yeah, um, I know there's some specific articles about... Um, from the you know from the National Park Service about organizations that help the National Park relief efforts. So if that's your interest, if that's your concern, um, that you can seek out those specific organizations also. Yeah. So we're coming to you, to you a week late. I guess just after skipping a week, we didn't record last week or publish Correct. a podcast last week. We were busy hiking in the mountains. Right. We gave ourselves a pass. We gave last ourselves weekend. a Labor Day vacation. Um, it's also a good school transition because Cole has is back in school now, and it's a crazy time. He's super busy. Um, I'm still working on books, and I'm subbing, and. It's 11 o'clock at night right now, and we're recording this podcast. Um, Because I just got home, and and you just got home. Right. Our little trip in Colorado was an awesome respite for us. Oh, my gosh. Um, We took my sister along. That's right. Which Erica. Yeah, she did awesome. Here's your shout out. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Which it was super fun to kind of show her the ways of Switchback Kids, like how how we arrange things in the car i don't we know maybe not don't so have a reservation for camping but managed to find a an totally awesome spot. 
totally awesome, gorgeous view campsite uh, for for free. Dispersed camping is where it's at for Mm -hmm. sure in Colorado. And so we we got to hike in Indian Peaks Wilderness, and we got to hike in... um, to Arapaho Pass, Roosevelt National Forest. Both, both in yeah. Ra- Roosevelt National Forest. Yeah, um, just south of Rocky Mountain National Park, and it was gorgeous. We'd never been there before, and you know, it's Those... a twelve-hour drive from from St. Louis, so it's not horrible for a weekend. Yeah, we are really debating going back and forth um, because it is so long uh, of a drive, and we are only going to be there for a little over forty-eight hours. But we managed to get three hikes in. One was just a short little sunset hike the first day we got there, and then two bigger hikes that Elizabeth mentioned. And those two hikes, the Sunday and Monday, into the mountains, the first one to um, a pass, Pawnee Pass, and then the second one to Arapahoe Pass and Dorothy Lake were amazing. I couldn't believe how gorgeous it was just in those national forest areas. Um, views all around and just a bunch of people out enjoying the weather, but we got up super early, so we beat a lot of the crowds. And man, it was just what I needed after a, a hectic last week at work and before going into school and totally getting absorbed into that whole craziness. Uh, so Good way to break up break up the craziness yeah the chaos i was i was so glad we just went for it Mm -hmm. we just jumped in the car and started driving and you know didn't look back it's a great way to kick off i it's like i always feel like and i i heard this on a podcast on the happier podcast if you don't listen to that it's awesome um but they were talking about september's the new january and i love that because it's such, and this is probably just the former teacher in me too, but September is such a good month to like refresh and reflect on uh, what you're doing and kind of start over, you know, school is starting and, but also it's just this time of like transitioning from summer into fall, which is also beautiful and awesome uh, weather wise and all sorts of things. Yeah. I thought they were talking about the fact that a lot of companies start their fiscal year in September now versus starting their fiscal year in January. That's, no. That's not what they meant? Normal people don't care about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. But anyway, September is beautiful and lovely, and we had a great trip that kind of kicked off the uh, that whole this whole season, this whole era for us. So shall we <laughs> kick off this era of the podcast where yes. we start talking about park stuff? Yes. Okay. So... We are not going to do Parks of the News, but we are going to answer a question, a reader question at the end of the podcast, so stay tuned for that. Um, But first, let's go ahead and start talking about the topic that we're diving into today, which is how to get deeper into the national parks. So that means logistics, strategies for exploring the ins and outs of the park beyond just what you see on the front webpage. Uh, and then, and this is the last installment of this theme, this the topic of this theme that we're talking about: park logistics. So we did did our top, we talked about our top ten overnight hikes um, a couple weeks ago. Then we did talked about having to plan ahead, specific parks where you really need to plan ahead. Uh, we talked about seasonal considerations last week and now or two weeks ago, and now we're talking about logistics of getting deeper. So the actual how to get permits, how to find backcountry hikes, how to how how to actually do this thing that you want to do. Right. And what we mean by going deeper is backcountry hiking or backpacking. It's maybe backcountry driving, off the beaten path day hikes, discovering secret spots, all the good stuff that really allows you to to get away from the crowds. As you may know, that's kind of our thing. (laughs) And then really see the park in a way that other people may not. Yeah, and and why is and why it's important is kind of what he just said. It's it's it not only is like good beneficial for you, but it's also kind of beneficial for the parks as a whole. You know, they don't get 
they get, they're really um, worn down in certain areas. I know, like, we talked about in our podcast at the very beginning um, about this idea of loving our parks to death. And part of the problem is that everyone wants to see the same stuff and the same few parks. And by getting deeper into parks that you might not expect to, you're actually wearing your you know, you're putting a lot less pressure on the land um, by kind of spreading yourselves out, if that makes sense. Zion is a great example that we talked about a few weeks ago. Everybody goes into the canyon because it's incredible, but there's a lot of ways you could either go into the backcountry, get permits to go down canyons that are amazing but restricted access, or go into different districts that are farther away. Uh, So, with that stage set, park number one is the aforementioned Everglades. Yes, Everglades, located in very, very southern Florida. Um, One of, it's it's a really interesting national park um, because it's such a fragile and specific ecosystem and it also, we, we heard a lot about this idea of, I think it was, they called it the Everglades effect. Is that what they called it? Where it's kind of this changing, this, this era, new era of the National Park Service. Um, so it was established in 1947. And it kind of, it represented a different kind of importance of, of things that needed to be protected. So before a lot of things like big, you know, beautiful mountains and, these giant sequoias and these really striking views and things that people like just saw as obvious beauty um, were obviously needing to be protected. The Everglades represented something that was a little different though, like a more subtle, a more subtle beauty, um, but an important, crucial ecosystem. Right. They really started uh, realizing that it's so important to protect the ecosystem as a whole. Uh, However, I will say that we learned about how in Everglades they didn't get completely there because, yes, they protected an incredible swath of southern Florida. Um, it is you know, the largest contiguous stand of sawgrass prairie in North America, uh, but the whole system is, starts at Lake Okeechobee. I believe it is, or, or something. Chagalaski. No, no, no. That <laughs> that big gigantic lake in yeah. the middle of um, like central Florida. So that is way north of where the actual Everglades starts. And my point is that that lake is where the actual Everglades uh, ecosystem begins, because all the water from there basically starts flowing down in a gigantic, um, basically wide, shallow river, and it just flows down Florida, eventually into the ocean, and mixes with the saltwater of Everglades. But, you know, that southern portion was very protected. The whole northern half, though, was cut in half by roads, uh, you know, dikes were built, and that flow of water was really impeded, which did really inhibit the natural ecosystem um, because that that just natural flow, that slow water flow was, um, I don't know, inhibited, and so were the animals. And, you know, so it wasn't a complete ecosystem protection, but it was a good start in 1947. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's when they kind of started realizing that that the the surrounding ecosystem supports the like the hub, like it's it's when you know it's it it's why in national parks they realize that the supporting you know what I'm talking about like the outskirts of the area is also really important. Right. Um, so anyway, like a watershed for yes. a stream. Yeah. Right. So fun facts about Everglades. It is the largest mangrove ecosystem in the Western Hemisphere. It is Yeah, ho- that's huge. Home to 13 endangered and 10 threatened species. And how awesome were the what was the wildlife we saw there? 
Yeah, we wrote a whole post on that. Yeah, it's also a uh, significant breeding grounds for tropical wading birds in North America. We saw a lot of birds. Birds were the biggest thing because I know, you know, you go to the Everglades, you think you're going to see alligators, and you do, definitely. But was what was the most significant wildlife were the birds because they were everywhere and they were awesome yeah huge birders paradise the and those huge wading birds were always super fun um you know when i go into the woods you know sometimes it's just hard to see all those little flying birds yeah but uh the the wading ones are pretty cool they right and and hingas i think Mm -hmm. they're called and Mm -hmm. the uh gray herrings and all sorts of things yeah Herring, herring. Green, green, green herons. I know, you said herring like a fish. Yeah, I get those confused. Yeah, they're close. It's hard. <laughs> it's also, isn't the Everglades the only place in the world where alligators and crocodiles coexist? I, it is. That was a really cool fact, actually. That was a really fun fact. I loved because that fact. Because it's at the very northern edge of the, the crocodiles uh, range and the very southern edge of the alligators range and the crocodiles in this area are saltwater alligators freshwater but there is in everglades there's a mix of the two Mm -hmm. Uh, and because of some of these things that you go to the everglades to see like the birds and the alligators and there's a lot of board small boardwalk trails it's really easy to stay on the beaten path i would say at everglades you know a lot of people go as part of their florida you know, Disney World beach vacation. So they go to Disney World, then they go to the beach, then they go to the Everglades. Yeah, that's um, what I think my family did the yeah. first time we went. Or it might have been that we we actually went right before we got on a cruise, or the one cruise we've gone on. Um, yeah, and so I don't think that everybody thinks, and I and honestly, when you go, I don't think very many people talk about the ways to go off the beaten path at Everglades. We didn't really know um all the things we were missing out on until we kind of got there and then left and didn't do much. That was also, and we'll talk about our our personal experience in a little bit, but, um, you know, it was not a great time to visit and, and whatnot. Everglades can really put you in your place. Yes, In a definitely. few ways. But if you're prepared, you can do some awesome stuff. Yeah, so the big thing I think that they have that that gets you off the beaten path is this 99-mile wilderness waterway that we learned about. Um, And paddling the 99-mile wilderness waterway, or part of the waterway, is such an awesome opportunity to see why this ecosystem has been protected. Right, and it goes along a huge stretch of the western coast. So you are basically paddling through all of these different islands uh, along the coast, and you stay actually in floating, um, they're called chickies, chickies, Mm -hmm. basically platforms that might be on... Yeah, uh, on some mangroves, or I don't know, actually know how they're constructed, but they're they're surrounded by water. You just paddle up to them. You put your camp, uh, you set up your tent on this platform in the middle of the water, and I, stay the night. They're a poor man's overwater bungalow. There you go. <laughs> you see, like in the Mal- in the Maldives, right, right. You see, like these beautiful bungalows. It's like <laughs> it's like that, but but with mosquitoes. <laughs> <laughs> They're also, they also have um, campsites that are ground sites. They have regular ground sites. They also have beach sites. Um, and there's tons. I think, I don't, I don't think I wrote it down, but there were dozens of campsites along this wilderness waterway. You do have to get permits. Um, and in the winter, you have to get them in person at the visitor center. In the summer, I think you have to get them at the visitor center, but I think they're self you can p- fill them out yourself. $15 for the permit for a flat fee plus $2 per person per day. Another way to get out is kayaking the inland waters. So that is more on the coast side. But there's also a chance to kayak through some of the, um, not swamp, because lakes. we learned that it wasn't a swamp. Right, the lakes, the uh, shallow estuary my, 
areas. Can I just tell a story? My very favorite thing that we heard in like three different ranger programs, <laughs> they, they talked about like, what did you think about? Like, close your eyes. Imagine what you pictured when you, when you thought about the Everglades. Like, everyone describes it as just a swamp. And then they're like, now open your eyes and look around. And I'm like, it's swamp. <laughs> it's <laughs> just, just a swamp. Like, what am I missing here? <laughs> just kidding. It is not Sorry. a swamp. Sorry, Everglades. <laughs> You're fine. You're okay. So, yeah, we actually did some kayaking that we'll talk a little bit but, uh, about later. But there's the Nine Mile Water Trail is a very popular one. You can also go sluice logging, which can really get you off the path, basically. But I will not go with you. <laughs> you can. I will not come. Basically, not this it. is just you start walking through the um, knee-high water and the trees uh, and the, uh, you know, maybe past a few alligator, um, what are those, uh, the depressions that the alligators carve out. Yeah, that's super fun <laughs> to go through those, the alligator bunk beds. Alligator holes. Yeah. Uh, gator holes, I think that's all what all they're called. Um, yeah, you tried to be way too sophisticated. <laughs> <laughs> they're alligator depressions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... So lots of ways to get off the beaten path at Everglades. There are all, there are more than that, but those are some of the basic ways. And, and if you do any of those things, you're going to be far, like far above most 90% of visitors probably. Um, Personally, our experience now, we visited in late November, which was really gross. Um, Do not underestimate the wet season at Everglades. So there's a dry season and a wet season because it's more tropical. It's it's, it's like on island, you know, on island seasons that have rainy seasons and dry seasons. Um, So the wet season goes... I didn't look this up, but I think it goes from about April, yeah, April or May through November or December. Yeah. So we hit it at the very end. We thought we might be okay with wet season, but it was the long, lingering wet season. So we had so many mosquitoes. Right. Thick. In the dry season, things dry up. The mosquitoes go away. Uh, we did not get into that window unfortunately also in the dry season it's better to go because with everything drying up the wildlife concentrates in those places where the water Mm -hmm. pools basically so it's better for wildlife viewing in the dry season too yep just overall just don't go in the wet season (laughs) yeah and it's not a great idea you know being in the northern hemisphere still it is a little cooler in the the dry season, you know, around the winter, early spring months. Yeah, so we did find lots to do. Like we said, we 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 did kayak in in um, on an inland water trail called the Nine Mile Trail, which was on a lake. Um, it was not nine miles, but it was like on the nine mile marker point on the highway. Do you remember <laughs> us being confused about that? Oh yeah, I do. So it's not. Nine I mean, I'm still confused. Yeah, by it's that, called Nine forgot. Mile Trail. Um, we also we that hiked. was that was actually if you do go be prepared to actually be fighting through some sawgrass and things like that because it's not a clear you know just perfect waterway yeah it was you, fun though you it really, was really have cool. to yeah navigate through the vegetation yeah which I thought was fun and there are some markers on the trees and we never really got lost I don't think um, but as long as you kind of have your bearings you should be fine. It was tough though, especially it was it might have been windy or something on the open lake. We had a hard time like, and counting our paddles in, before we could take a little rest. <laughs> and our uh, blow up kayak, our inflatable kayak, does not necessarily slice through uh, water in general, but especially not water choked with grasses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we also loved the Anhinga Trail. Which was like guaranteed wildlife and alligators, mm-hmm. lots of birds, um, lots of cool things to see. It's a boardwalk um, over over the water, and it's it. We did a little ranger program there, um, and also just walked around on our own, and it was really nice. I loved sluice logging after that, which, as Elizabeth mentioned, she was not. A I fan turned around of. within about a hundred feet. <laughs> But so I went into this, um, so it was a cypress dome, 
is what they called it. And so it's a really cool stand of cypress trees all clumped together in about maybe a football size field uh, area. And you can just start wading through the water and you can't really see where you're stepping. So that's an adventure in itself. Um, you have to kind of navigate over the trees and limbs down in the water. Uh, you have to keep your eyes out for any wildlife you might see. Um, maybe even some gators if you're lucky, right? Yeah, <laughs> lucky. No, one really cool thing, though, I saw were a, a few different owls in this cypress dome. And that was just really neat to kind of just spot them. Mm -hmm. You know, they're checking me out way up in the branches. And that was just kind of something that was, uh, I'll, I'll definitely remember. Um, because you just, when it's one of those things that you're doing all on your own, it, it's, um, I don't know, really makes a difference with the type of wildlife you see. And it's not just right along the road. I feel like I actually saw it and it's real the owls in their real setting i was just looking at you that was the longest sentence i've ever heard someone say i think you guys should rewind 15 seconds and listen to cole's a really long sentence i'm gonna don't, dump this water on you please don't okay another place where we saw really good wildlife was at the campground the flamingo campground um we didn't please stop <laughs> <gasps> <laughs> I felt like I teased it too much. I had to actually ah, dump some water. I didn't think you were going to do that. <laughs> yeah, well, you thought wrong. Okay, so you were saying? <laughs> Flamingo Campground was the second campground we stayed at. We started at Long Pine, and it was weird and and felt like it was closed but it was not there was like nobody there it was really creepy so we stayed one night but then we left <laughs> i think it just felt like it was closed because people probably thought to themselves why would we ever go to this campsite where your tent is immediately swallowed in a cloud of mosquitoes yeah it was so gross but flamingo campground was a little more open it was still terribly mosquito-y for sure but it also um it just was really pretty and had a lot of palm trees and um, very scenic campground. It also had showers. Do you remember that? I do. We got yes. a shower that day. Very rare. That was great. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah. In Florida Campground, too, one thing I want to mention. Florida Campground. Uh, Flamingo Campground. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, first, this is a good place to kind of try to see a crocodile and maybe a manatee from the marina area of uh, basically the southern tip of Everglades. What I really liked, though, was getting again into the inflatable kayak and kayaking along the coast, uh, the southern coast, and you just saw so many incredible birds, uh, flamingos, I think rose spoonbills or rosetta spoonbills, um, a bunch of fish were jumping out of the water next to the kayak. Elizabeth didn't go because she was being lame, but I really enjoyed Someone it. maybe poured water on me, <laughs> and I felt sad. That's probably what happened. I really uh, enjoyed it, getting up early in the morning and going out there. The tide was changing, so you could see the fish just, or the the birds getting into the mud and looking for breakfast. Um so, yeah, definitely check that out. Very cool. Wealth of wildlife on and display. And then the last place where we camped, which is slightly outside the park, but not really. So if you go north, um, the north section of Everglades is called Chokoloski. And it's kind of, you have to drive around and through Big Cypress National Preserve to get there. Past, um, past an area called Shark Alley, which is a different part of Everglades that yeah. we didn't explore. Right. Um, but then you kind of drive along the coast down to Chokoloski and there's a little visitor center there. There's a few things to do in the park, um, but there's a really awesome private campground. It was called Chokoloski Island Park. It was like an RV park um, and it was less than $20 for a tent site. And it also had this amazing lounge. It also had showers, of course, it included like nice bathrooms and showers. Um, but it had a this giant room that was like 
And well, it was like a whole building that had a, a full-size kitchen and a huge like lounge area with a big TV and movies and puzzles and um, games and tables and the whole place had Wi-Fi. So it felt like such a treat for us. It felt like a hotel. We were so spoiled those two nights. Well, because we and you know we were in a backpacking tent, so we couldn't even really sit up let alone walk around inside our home for a year. (laughs) So it felt really good to just like lounge on a couch and do a puzzle and watch a movie, watch some movies and just like hang out at this place where we didn't have to be outside. This sounds, this sounds bad. Like we liked being outside, (laughs) but this, this little moment felt really good. And the sunsets from this park were incredible both nights. So good. So I would recommend checking out if you have a tent it was around $18, I think, to camp, which was pr- really cheap for Southern Florida. I think it might have still been off-season rates. Yeah, probably. Um, but the, another bonus, they have a little kitchen there, and you know we just assumed some of the food lying around was leftovers and kind of helped ourselves a little bit. I don't think you should admit that. <laughs> No, it was like a bag of old chips, which at that stage in our life, we were neither too um, too good for or too uh, courteous for. Yeah, I'm not proud of that. The other, a couple of other like non-outdoor things in down in the Everglades, there was the best Starbucks in the whole country, I thought. In Florida City, like right at the intersection where you turn into the Everglades, there's the 24-hour Starbucks. We spent a lot of time there. We did. We spent a lot of nights, we, overnights there. We were overnights. Well, I mean, no. like we spent a lot of late nights because it was twenty-four hours, and we used the twenty-four hours. I, I guess so. Yeah. That was mainly because Florida was a weird time where we were we were waiting for our flight to Virgin Islands, so we had a little bit of a gap between Everglades and Virgin. Well, Islands, and we didn't basically. get to go to Bis- the Keys on Biscayne, so we only Biscayne National Park is near Everglades. And we only really got to do the coast part of that park, which is not the heart of the park. Um, and it didn't take very long. So we did have a lot of time at this Starbucks. It was a good one, though. We'd also recommend going to a fruit stand called Robert is Here. It's a really touristy destination, but it's super worth it. And you got a lot of exotic fruits and then really, really good smoothies and fruit shakes. Um, so definitely check out those non-park things around Everglades. For sure. That's super on the beaten path. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's okay. Sometimes you need balance. <laughs> so, I don't know about you. I'm ready for park number two. I'm ready to move to the to the West Coast. Yeah. The, way uh, off the West Coast of the U.S. Way off the West Coast. Of course, we're talking about Haleakala on Maui. We had to go to Haleakala. We had to go to Maui. Oh, darn. That's right. So... Haleakala is, you know, one of the two parks in Hawaii. The other is Hawaii Volcanoes National Park on the Big Island. And what I was fascinated to learn researching for this episode was, or more appropriately, Elizabeth researching for this episode. Why would you even ever say that? You you look so offended. I mean, I was speaking in generalities. Okay. You said I. <laughs> Everybody knows that she does all the work to prepare for the podcast. It wouldn't hurt okay. to repeat it okay. every chance you get. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, yeah, point made. Anyway, I learned when reading your preparation for the podcast that uh, Haleakala actually used to be part of uh, Hawaii Volcanoes National Park when it was established in 1916. S- but then in 1961, Hawaii Volcanoes became a separate park. Haleakala became a separate park. And then in 1980, the park was actually granted status as an international biosphere, biosphere reserve by UNESCO. So, Which is interesting that they would ever be managed by the same... Do you, do you, if you th- if you actually think about it, like they were the same national park, they're so different. They're such different landscapes. They such, are so such different. Uh, just they're on different islands, first of all, 
but and they were like worlds apart to me. Mm-hmm. It seems so different. Haleakala itself is super diverse. I remember them saying it's the it's is it the national park with the widest range of of precipitation. Like if you go from the coast, the um, the Kippa Kippahulu mm-hmm. area of the park where it's like rainforesty, um, and then you go up to Haleakala Crater. There's such a wide difference in precipitation um, that the, those two areas of the same national park get. And I think it's the like the widest range um, in the national park system. I could be wrong, but I same think national I park, you go from yep. like ve- barely any rain to like all rain all the time. Just a, f- you know, dozen, a couple dozen miles away. Yeah, I remember hearing that. So... Haleakala, just to give people an idea, is actually divided into two main regions. So that includes the coastal rainforesty region that she mentioned called Kipahulu. And then the other region includes the summit area of the dormant dormant Haleakala volcano. So very distinct and... um, other cool local legend fun facts is that Haleakala, um, or that Maui, a, demi- a demigod popularized by Moana, of course, imprisoned the sun at Haleakala to make the day longer. So very central to Hawaiian lore. And the Haleakala, as the national park, has the highest peak in the island of Maui. It gets up to 10,000 feet over sea level. Which, if you think about Hawaii, think about driving from sea level, only how many miles is it from sea level up to the, the top of, of Haleakala? It's not very many. No, that would have been a like great... Like 15? Uh, it might be longer than that. It's not very many miles, though. I would say it's probably less than 20. Y- yeah, you, it's it really takes steep. you about... It's a steep mountain. F- probably 40 minutes to get from the coast to yeah. the top. There's a, there's a big road, a long winding road up to Haleakala, um, which is really packed in the morning. So I know one of the biggest things to do at, is watch the sunrise from the, the, the summit. And some people totally miss out on it because they're just stuck in this line of cars. Um, so one thing to do for sure is to get there early, uh, to get to the sunrise extra early, even mm-hmm. earlier than you think you would need to. Yeah, and visitors to the national park, besides the sunset and the sunrise, can enjoy a ton of different activities, um, hiking, swimming, um, backpacking and of course bird watching actually Haleakala is where we first saw the state bird of Hawaii called the Nene, Nene. which is a funny name but really just means a goose um, basically it's a mm-hmm. different type of goose and it only looks exactly like a goose <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> only in Hawaii though because all of these species somehow you know before humans even got there made their way to hawaiian islands whether it was on you know birds flying or insects floating over in you know vegetation um so hawaii has a ton of endemic species and interestingly the uh, there are more endangered species in Haleakala than any other U.S. national park. That blew my mind. Yeah, that's interesting. And being on an island, it, it's kind of inducive to that. Um, conducive. Conducive. <laughs> <laughs> conducive to that. Because you're sort of... And we saw the same thing on Channel Islands off of the coast of L.A. They have a lot of endemic species also because they're kind of, you know, on an island, you're very cut off from from other places. Um but yeah, really interesting, really super cool wildlife, super really diverse landscapes from one side of the park to the other. And um, we definitely got to explore both sides. There are de- there are several ways to get off the beaten path on either side of the park. Yeah, so you could do some backpacking, 
You, sh- you could camp in the campgrounds or wilderness cabins, which is a really cool option they have, but you have to book it well in advance. And those are even down in the crater of Haleakala because there's a huge, um, I mean, basically the whole summit overlooks a gigantic crater. And don't worry, though, it has not um, erupted since between 1480 A.D. and 1600 A.D. So it is considered dormant. Thank goodness. We hiked down in it and did not get blown up. And it was super, really, one of the most interesting experiences, one of those, like, bucket list experiences that we, we consider in our Hall of Fame that we camped and slept 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 uh, i wish i was asleep right now <laughs> that we slept inside a crater a volcano yeah yeah super cool so yeah there's the the wilderness cabins though i know this is a really popular option and it's a really great way to not have to carry all of your gear to hawaii so we had our tent and we had our backpacks and we had everything with us because we were you know, we were going from Haleakala, then to Hawaii Volcanoes, then to American Samoa. So we had a lot of gear. Um, but if you don't want to carry all of your gear, you can book these wilderness cabins. You have to book them well in advance. And that is, they are located throughout the, the volcano where you can go and they you have to carry, you know, food and water and whatever other, other little things you need, clothes. Um, but they provide the rest, so it's it's great for for lighter weight camping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the other another thing you can do is it, you can backpack um, way through throughout the rainforest area. I know a lot of a lot of um, people do these long extended hikes, and part of it I know is on private land, so you do have to be careful of that. But you can start or finish in the Kipahulu area of the park, which is where we went. It's definitely less popular than the summit area, just because everyone who's on Maui goes to the sun, the summit to watch the sunrise. Um, but you can, this is like the tropical area. There's a really great free campground that was right on the beach. And super I keep saying super, I feel like. I'm really self-conscious of it. Just say really. Really. Uber. Really. Uber. I'm not going to say that. It was uber crowded. It was though. very crowded. Yes. So, we, uh, fortunately, they didn't have specific spaces for the campsites. Uh, so, we were able to just plop our tent down next to some other people in a little gap and... Um, it, it's a really convenient place, though. It's free, just like all the national park campsites on Hawaii, except now I think you said that they are starting to cost money now. I think so, yeah. I remember looking at Hawaii Volcanoes, the camp, the main campground we stayed there, um, is now like $5. It's still really <laughs> cheap. It's not a big deal. Anyway, that's an aside. Yeah. Um, we, from that Kipahulu area, we did some really cool first hikes into the um, waterfall area. The gigantic wa- main waterfall is called Waimaku, uh, probably completely butchering that pronunciation as I do with all Hawaiian names, but that was a beautiful hike back there a few miles. You got to go through this awesome bamboo forest that just swallowed you up in a sea of bamboo uh, just curtains and curtains that you kept walking through mm-hmm. um, then there's the oh ohio gulch that uh, you can go to it's a great swimming hole and one of my regrets of that visit is that we didn't bring our swimming suits to the actual gulch area because we still kind of got in it yeah. and it's also closed now yeah do you remember me telling you that i don't know i do I th- remember i think you it's, me. it's closed indefinitely so who knows if it's gonna open back up um or if it's just a seasonal thing or or what or if there was injuries i know it's a, a popular place for people to swim and people like jump off cliffs there and it's pretty dangerous, too. It was like a stair-stepping river with a bunch of different pools going down 
from the mountains, the rainforest mountains, to the coast. So it was like a really cool section of the the gulch Mm -hmm. as the water entered and met with the ocean. So one of the main ways to get deeper into the parks, into this park on Haleakala, is to camp. So like we mentioned, we camped twice instead of staying at a hotel or a resort on Maui. They're free. They were free. Um, You might want to check. They might be cheap. Um, But there are two campgrounds. And the one that was close to the crater, uh, the the summit area, it just gave such easier access to the for watching the sunrise, um, because you're already halfway up the hill and you don't have to come all the way down from sea level. So it they were nice. They were you know not not anything too special as far as campgrounds go. They just gave really good access to the parks. And they are first come first serve, and they do fill up quickly. Uh, we already talked about the crowdedness of Kipahulu, but on the way to the summit, that campground was equally crowded. And just make sure you get there uh, early in the day. And it, like she said, gives you a great jumping off point the next morning to get to the sunrise. Um, and one of Which our... leads us to our next little off-the-beaten-path trick. Right. We have a little secret Everybody goes up to the very top of the summit and pat jams the parking lot, you know, gets out, crowds over to the uh, railing and looks from the visitor center or the, the top summit. We say, forget about all that. Well, the ranger said this, so we got this tip from a ranger. There we go. That mentioned, if you watch the sunrise from one of the short little overlook trails, along up on the way up to the summit there was like get, five minutes you before will, you got to the summit or something like right almost right at the summit yeah you will get um the same view with no people and we we so we parked our car at one of these overlooks and it was an overlook that required like a two a one or two minute walk so you kind of like walk down away from the parking lot um, and that was enough, I think, to deter people because we had we watched it alone. We brought a blanket. We um, maybe had like hot chocolate or something to keep us warm. It wasn't even that cold. But we just watched the sunrise all by ourselves. It was quiet. It was peaceful. Nobody was in our way. Nobody was elbowing us to get a good picture. Um, and that was one of the best moments of the park for me. Totally. And it was because we worked a little bit harder to get off the beaten path. We talked to the ranger. We asked them about any tips or secrets that they had, and they provided. Big time. And then, right after that, the main... The main draw, the main attraction of the park for me is actually being able to walk down into the crater. So Elizabeth touched on this, how we uh, basically checked off a huge line on our bucket list walking down into a volcano. And it was really cool going down the sliding sands trail from the summit down this you know, old volcanic rock uh, mountainside into the crater. And then once you got down there, it was just like the surface of Mars with a lot of red rock, just gentle hills within the crater, a bunch of old, you know, cinder cones that were made by the, the volcano trying to restart itself. So a, a bunch of uh, cones within the crater. And you just kind of wound through those. You climbed through the jagged cinder rocks. And eventually you got all the way back to the rainforesty side um, in the very back of the crater, the opposite side from the summit area. And that was one of my favorite campgrounds of the whole trip, I Definitely. think. Um, and it was, you know, we were almost all alone there were a few other tents there but we got our own little private site only the nene to keep us company as they kind of waddled by with their family of ducklings and i actually surprised one once and it started chasing me like crazy i, I was scared 
Um, Our baby nanes, they're not called ducklings. Goslings, I guess. Nanelings. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds good. Babies. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the, one of the coolest things from this campground is that you could see the clouds pouring in and creating this huge cloud bank right off of the the crater so there's basically the crater has a spillway down the mountainside and you saw the clouds come up that spillway from underneath so that was just really fun in itself to watch the clouds move yeah good experiences all around that we had Mm-hmm. We, you know, we also did some on the beaten path things. We um, w- drove the road to Hana, which is where what ended in the Kipahula area um, on the first on our approach to the park. And then we drove around like the scenic route up to the, the summit, up to the crater, Haleakala. Um, and then, like we said, we camped one night at, at um, inside the volcano at Paliku. Um, so that was kind of our experience. We went in January of 2016. It was our first park of the new year. It was the first park of the centennial year of, of, uh, of our trip. So about yeah. halfway through our trip, we were experienced enough to kind of know what we were doing, but we also, it was a totally new experience for us too, because we, it was the first time we really, I guess we went to Virgin Islands before that, but it was, it was the furthest away we had been. Um, we had neither of us had been to Hawaii before, so it was really cool to experience it in this way, in this like camping, backpacking sort of way. Yeah, and we didn't have our car. We didn't have the old Fiesta, uh, not the Fiesta. Gross. <laughs> yeah, the Escape. We um, did have but, a car. We rent. Right. We rented a car, which I think I would recommend, just so you have your own schedule of waking up and getting up for the sunrise. And then, for us, we camped, and so we could keep our stuff in the back seat and. And uh, not have to worry about carrying it all the time. And could get over to the opposite side of the island, Kip- sure. Kipahulu. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So overall, this idea of getting in deeper into the national parks, it I think it should be considered on every single trip. It's it's just a really really good thing to do. It's good for other people. It's good for your own enjoyment. It's good for the resources of that of the national parks. It does require a little bit of planning, but you should not be intimidated because you will feel like such a pro when you get, when you find these little secrets, discover these hidden spots, and just get deeper into um, the solitude of the national parks. Couldn't agree more. So with that, I think we can transition to our last part, a question from Caleb B. Yeah, Caleb wrote us and he said that he had several questions, which one of one of which we've answered already, but here's another question. With how long the trip was, how many reservations did you get ahead of time for some of the busier parks? Um, so my wife and I are looking at doing the same sort of trip and many of the more popular national parks may need reservations for activities or backpacking. Did you get those at the beginning of your trip or throughout? Do you think it's possible to do basically the whole trip without reservations and just try to get the first come first serve permits? So this kind of goes with our whole getting deeper into the parks and how to actually do it. Yeah, Caleb has a lot had a lot of good questions. So we wanted to answer this one for anybody who may be interested as well. Uh, basically, what I would say is for us, we started off doing all kinds of planning, getting everything reserved ahead of time. That was all Elizabeth's super awesome planning up front uh, before we left for the trip. Once we actually got on the trip and got past the first leg, we outran our planning and just honestly couldn't keep up with it because we had so much other stuff to do in the little time that we did have service that we didn't want to spend it all trying to figure out a bunch of logistics and doing detailed planning. So eventually, you know, after two or three months into our trip, we kind of mostly 
went for the first come first serve permits for all of that um, you know fly by the seat of your pants type stuff except when it came to the bigger things like um, the Yosemite camping and other big... I would say we totally still <laughs> yeah <laughs> we're winging it with those things we got really lucky we got a Grand Canyon uh, corridor trail permit um, the day before. So we did the walk-in permit. We also got a walk-in permit to hike the subway in Zion. And we uh, went into Yosemite, tried to get the lottery, the camping lottery uh, permit, and we didn't get it. So we camped just outside of Yosemite in a national forest. And, and then, we did get it for a few days. And then came back yeah. to get to get the camping the next day. Um, so we did a mix. We... I think for our own comfort, especially at the beginning of our trip, it was really nice to have some things reserved um, for some of the bigger parks. And especially Especially then... campsites. Campsites, it felt, that felt, felt really good to have some of those reserved. Like in Arches, for example, it's really beneficial to be able to camp inside Arches because the, the park road is so long and you won't really want to get up early for some of these hikes, um, like Delicate Arch, the main iconic one. Um, so do a little bit of research on to see which national parks are going to be important to to camp inside the park. And then especially if you want to backpack, um, maybe do like a handful of, of really deep prep ahead of time. And then just be prepared to have a flexible mindset and be ready to change things and go in maybe not totally knowing what you're going to do that night and be okay with that. And I would say, as long as you're not going to super specific parks, uh, Elizabeth made a great point about uh, you know determining which parks you really want to stay in because it gives you certain access. But if you're able to be flexible, I would say you can really get away with first come first serve type permits, campground reservations or not reservations. For just first come first serve campground sites um, it's really possible to do everything last minute essentially in the parks they do in almost all cases we saw try to hold a little handful of permits sites for people who come in last minute um, so I I think that as long as you're flexible, you can you know, maybe wait a day or switch around the days that you have in a park to do maybe your backpacking last or first. Um, yeah, the more flexible your time is, the more flexible you can be with your preparation. If you are working full time and you only have one week of vacation, then maybe you want to plan it out a lot more and make sure you get what you want. But if your time is a little more fluid then your, um, you know, your attitude going into it can be a lot more flexible also. Right. In places like the Dakotas, we didn't have any type of restrictions. It wasn't that popular when we were there, so we could do first come, first serve everything. When we went to Alaska just a few weeks later, we had a very tight time frame. We had a few flights that we knew we had to catch to get to these places and we couldn't screw up. So we had to reserve everything ahead of time. So it really depends on your level of flexibility, your level of comfort and um, your level of, you know, yeah, just uh, ease in going with the flow. Yep. So thank you guys for checking us out today. We'll be back next week with an interview. If you enjoyed the podcast, we'd love for you to share us with a friend. Give us a rating on iTunes, pretty please, or SoundCloud. And find us on social media at social, uh, at <laughs> social media at, at social media. Switchback Kids. Uh, and you can always get additional national parks, videos, posts. <laughs> you always say it like that. Oh, do I? <laughs> Man. Why would people want to get national parks? What does that even mean? Well, it, that's how it's written. Gets, get there's national, not a comma after national parks. Read get, it like there's a comma. Get national parks videos, posts, guides, and more, along with our new ebooks that we have just released for the Mighty Five of Utah. 
Anyway, lots of stuff on our blog. Switchbackkids.com. Switchbacks out. <laughs> Switchbacks out. <laughs>